As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, regular listeners. You may have spotted that we've changed our name. It's now Honey & Co. The Food Sessions. So if you hear this sound, it's just us making dinner. Well, that and the fact that we're not allowed to use our old title anymore. It's just been a bit of a thing, but don't worry about it. We hope you enjoy the show. Hi, thank you so much for downloading our podcast, The Honey and Co. My name is Itamar Sulovic. Me and my wife have some restaurants in Fitzrovia and a couple of cookbooks. Ever since we opened our restaurant, we've been meeting so many incredible people who are cooking, who are making food, who are writing about food. And we just want to have a little bit more time with them. We invite our favorite people once a month or twice a month to our deli, Honey and Spice. And we sit down and have a longer chat. We cook from their books and from their culture. And this is a recording of these talks. I hope you enjoy it. This evening we had the pleasure of speaking to Asma Khan, one of the most charismatic women I have ever met. She's opened a restaurant called Darjeeling Express. She's written a book by the same name. She's just filmed for Netflix on Chef's Table. She's so interesting. Her story just made my jaw drop. We talked about opening a restaurant in London, writing a cookbook, remembering your heritage through food, getting married in an arranged marriage, everything. It's fascinating. Have a listen. Welcome, everyone, to the Honey and Coke. We're very excited to have Asma Khan here. She's just published a new book, Darjeeling Express, first book. And we're going to listen a bit about your life story, about your restaurants, about your books, about your planned charities, loads, and TV, loads and loads of stuff. Welcome. We're very excited to have you. Thank you very much. Okay. Let's start from the beginning. You were born in India. Yes. In Calcutta. And we were just talking a bit, but your, your start is quite different than how we started, the, or arriving in England, I should say. Yes, because I, I was never, ever, you know, someone who wanted to come abroad and live. I saw myself always as living in India. We, I come from a family where everyone is married off at 18. Uh, your marriage is decided at quite a young age uh, because you marry within your own clans and, you know, within distant relatives, because one thing about coming from a royal family is that, you know, everybody kind of expects you still to marry within royalty. And, uh, you know, it's, of course, now it's changed a lot. I mean, since I've got married, a lot of uh, my cousins, you know, are now marrying whoever they want to marry. This, 
But I, I was still of that group of cousins where everybody got married at 18, uh, except me, because uh, whoever was uh, suitable to marry me um, was a bit terrified. And uh, <laughs> more than, more than the, the men, I think it was their mothers who felt I was troubled. And um, so... They were probably right, in a way. <laughs> yeah, because the thing is that I, I love playing cricket, and I used to play cricket the whole day. I was not a very feminine kind of person. They, didn't, they, they were a bit worried that I was a bit going to be a bit rebellious. Fair enough. I mean, I understand that, you know, I, I, I understand in the cultural context that I was a bit wild. But, you know, my parents never tried to tame me. And my mother would always say, you know, you, you know if just do what you want to do. Just don't do anything. Uh, that will bring shame to the family. And she didn't think for me to be playing cricket all day on the street was bringing shame to the family. And for those who did, didn't want me as a daughter-in-law, fair enough. I don't want to be their daughter-in-law. <laughs> so you did get a, a marriage arranged in the end? Yes, I, I, I by kind of very smart uh, you know, planning by my uh, extended family, they kind of entrapped my husband to, <laughs> without telling him that he was coming to uh, meet me. Uh, I was a journalist. He came uh, in, in good faith to meet me because he thought I was going to help him. Uh, into, he wanted to interview someone who was quite difficult to get hold of, but you know, I knew everybody then. I was a journalist. And um, I felt really bad for him because I saw him. I realized this guy's so sweet, so innocent, and he's so sincere. He's taking notes, and he's not even looking at me. He doesn't know what it is. Poor guy. I mean, anyway, poor guy. Uh, didn't have much of a chance, and we got uh, married uh, two months after he met me. And, yeah, and I moved to Cambridge with... Literally no kind of preparation idea or or even kind of thinking through. So I arrived here like, you know, with my traditional uh, wedding clothes, um, no jeans, no warm clothes. I had suitcases of uh, beautifully hand-embroidered hand cotton clothes that my aunts and mom, mother had made for years and kept for me, saris. I arrived in January um, <laughs> and... Uh, See, everyone knows what that means. Yeah, and it was uh, it was really tough, very tough. You said something before that I thought was amazing. That when you looked at kind of the trees in fall and they have no leaves, and you felt stripped in the same kind yeah. of way. I think that's a really because strong I, image. Yeah, I mean, I'm that generation uh, in India where we didn't see a lot of TV. Uh, you know, I, I left India when, before cable TV came in. I'm the non, I mean, not the computer generation at all. So you know, I've seen trees, you know, in on films and and and. In, in books uh, with no leaves but when I arrived in Cambridge and the whole reality hit me that I was this with this person who I didn't know very well who didn't understand me and when I walked between the trees I felt like the trees stripped of everything that I knew was me and I you felt, couldn't cook as well yeah right? I couldn't cook that was the biggest problem that you know I realized I could do nothing I say this in my cookbook my cookbook really is a voice of an immigrant where the food is really used as a way to make, you know, make yourself feel home, but also find roots to this land that you're in. And um, I, I just felt like the trees, yeah. I felt completely stripped bare and so exposed because I, nothing that I knew that I'd understood made sense to me anymore. I was with this person who also didn't understand when I used to say I, I miss home, because for him, home was Cambridge. So there was no understanding that, you know, 
I am so hollow and I'm so raw inside. I need to cook. And, you know, he just thought I hated his food. He could make this one chicken curry every day. <laughs> yeah, I hated his food too. But it was also just that, you know, I, 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 I realized that I had to cook. I had to cook to, to, feel, to feel whole, so I could breathe, that I felt complete because I was just so empty uh, without food. I know it may sound crazy that food can be so important, but actually it is. It is. If you're an immigrant and you leave everything that you love and everything that is familiar, and you're on a land where you feel you do not connect, I had no friends, I knew nobody. Uh, by cooking, I thought I could make friends. I write about this in the book as well. I felt I could connect with people. Uh, and also, I've, I wanted to, them to like me. And I know, I, maybe I'm very Asian, but I just thought if I cook really well, they will make friends with me and want to come back and be friends with me. Because I, uh, you know, I knew nobody. And my husband seemed to be like living this strange existence where he wear his kind of Batman cape clothes uh, because he used to lecture with his gown and leave and then come back late at night. I was alone in the space where I was, you know, it was just so cold. I didn't know what to do. So how did you start learning how to cook? What, what was the process for you? I, I went home because I, I went home. I told my mother I wasn't going to go back. That caused like major pandemonium in the family. And, but it worked to my advantage because the thing is that in a family like mine, if any girl comes back, after being married. It's a huge disgrace. Uh, being divorced is a big disgrace. So I played on that. So all my aunts gave me all their secret recipes. <laughs> because they were like, I, I told everybody, no one's going to marry your daughters. I'm going to come back, but I want to learn how to make this, you know. And they said, oh yeah, sure, we'll make So they never taught anyone, and they used to lie to each other about the recipes. I have everyone's accurate recipe, because I told them, <laughs> I want to make it just like yours, because otherwise I'll come back. Okay. And it was quite funny, because my mother first was appalled, and then she found this whole thing very amusing. My mother took it very well. My mother took it very well. It would have been a huge hustle if she'd got stressed out about it. She, she'd looked at it as a joke. I now realize now that I have my own children that she did that to cope with what she could see as my grief. But she realized that if she asked me that, you know, are you unhappy? She never asked me that question because she didn't want to hear the answer. I do this with my children now. When it's so obviously I can see there's a problem, I, I step around it and try and deal with it in other ways because I can't deal with the answer. So nobody asked me this question. Uh, and, but they all taught me how to cook. So really, the kind of, it's, I learned in a very different way. I learned, you know, people just put their arms around me with so much passion and desire that, you know, I should perfect each dish. I came back, I had cracked it. I could do everything <laughs> better than them because the ingredients were better. And yeah, and within a year, I could cook everything I'd wanted to eat. And you started cooking for a supper club, actually. Yeah, I, I, I first, initially, I started cooking for friends because I was trying to make friends. I used to cook, uh, make these big... Fi- My husband thought I'd completely flipped it because for him, uh, I better not call him antisocial. No, I'm going to call him antisocial. <laughs> he is. He, he likes students, but he doesn't particularly like random people coming to the house. Uh, I would call random people to the house to feed him. And then, you know, he was like, you know, I'm just, this is, you know, this is a really bad idea. So he had this aversion about me cooking which continued for years and years. He hated all the smells in the house, the chaos of cooking. He is very different from me. Uh, for him, food is very basic. Uh, he, he doesn't enjoy eating. He never likes any of the dishes I cook. Uh, and this is just, he has a very different style of food that he likes. 
and he grew up in war zones. I think maybe that's why his style of eating is very simplistic. He doesn't think food is a very big thing. So very different from me. Uh, so it, it's been interesting because uh, he's watched me from a distance where food is the core and center of my being. And it is not anything to him. I mean, he just could have, you know, plain dal and be so satisfied. I tell him I had a great meal. I mean, if you gave me plain dal to eat and that was it, I'd just keel over and die. <laughs> but he, this is for him, he's very simple. And so that's why there was a big difference between us about our attitudes towards food. Yep. And this this pop-up, and obviously it was successful, sorry, the, the supper clubs led to a pop-up. Yes. And in Soho, like, this is quite a, a big thing, isn't it? Yeah. You suddenly end up in Soho and you're cooking, and it was a huge success. It was a huge success, and, you know, Faye Mashler came in, you know, two weeks after I was doing the pop-up and wrote this great review, ranked the pop-up in the top 15 restaurants in Evening Standard. Yeah, it was a big game-changer. I mean, I only went to the pub, I went to the Soho pub because my kids protested. I always ignored my husband. He hated the supper clubs. I did it behind his back. And he never knew. He kind of suspected that people would come when he was away. And then, but then the children were always there. And then they complained to my dad. My dad shouted at me. I had to close it. And I just moved to the... Because I had nowhere else. I really... I loved cooking. And I was like, you know, I'm stuck now because now the kids are whinging. So I couldn't cook in the, in the house anymore. And uh, then I, I... Yeah, and then that's when I realized that, you know, oh my God, we can be successful. There is a story here because... The women who were cooking with me from the supper club days were nannies who were working around my area. I used to do the supper clubs on the weekends. Mushtaq was in Africa or traveling. So they came because Sundays were always their day off. And they continued on and they joined me when I was doing the pop, pop, up. They would work in kind of in shifts and come in and help. But we had, you know, we were a really successful team. We managed to get a lot of food out in very difficult circumstances because I mean, my God, the pub was like madness. <laughs> and it was a hard, it was like the same kind of uncertainty of a restaurant. I'm very glad I didn't move from a supper club to a restaurant. You that's can't make that a, That's no, quite a yeah, different You thing. can't make that journey because in supper club, everything is predictable. Like, you know exactly how many people are coming, who has got a nut allergy, who has got an allergy, which they will discover at the very last minute. You kind of, uh, uh, you are prepared for all of these things. But a restaurant is chaotic. You know, it can be like, you know, if it rains or you know, the tube strike, no one comes. Uh, or you know, or you're so full that you're dying, and or people book and then don't don't rock up. So all these fluctuations that happen, we practiced and learned learned the craft of how to run a restaurant in the Soho pub. Yeah, that's a, it's an amazing experience to have. We never had, which we maybe should have. Um, <laughs> you learn afterwards. So that led to this restaurant. Yes, and this is it, it's still a big leap, going pop up uh, to a full, you know location, all the investment that this requires. Also, you joined like one of these areas. I don't know if you guys know, but London works by estates. There's a lot of areas held by kind of certain estates and they kind of want certain people in there. But that also means you need to comply with some rules of that. So that's, again, quite a different thing. You have to raise money. You yes. have to get people behind you. How did that go? Well, I, I always, for my entire life that I can remember, I had this fear of being uh, restricted and chained down because of tradition and convention. This is why no one married me, and uh, no one in my royal families married me. And I realized that I would now, it was like getting married to someone else, because I had to go to some man for money. But I had no choice, because I needed investment. And I, I, so I spoke to someone who was a son of a Bollywood uh, 
director, uh, very rich, and he seemed very excited. The night before, he was supposed to give me the money. He changed the entire agreement and said, oh, I think, I think you're going to be very successful. My father wants to talk to you, which in Indian speak, I understand. This is like when someone's going to come and kick you. And I, he said, like, I think this is great, and, you know, but I would like to do this with, you know, we want half the company. Uh, we can give you more money. What would I do with the more money? Buy Prada shoes. I mean, I only needed a certain amount of money. It was just horrible. And I said, I'll think about it. And for two hours, I cried. I sat in one corner. I haven't cried like this my whole, I think, my entire life. And then I cried for two hours. My husband, who always, you know, told me this was going to be a failure, intensely disliked my cooking and always <laughs> told me that I was one of the smartest lawyers that he had ever met, that I, if I wanted to help women out, I should just start a legal practice and help women out, cooking with them and, you know, going around town, you know, in carrying pots of, you know, biryani in, in Uber cars. Mm-hmm. It's such a bad idea and what a waste of a life, a waste of my intellect. I've not done anything. And I could understand there was a lot of, you know, sense of what he was saying, that if I wanted to change women's life, this was not the way to do it. Cooking was not the way. Boy, have I proved him wrong. Anyway, <laughs> but I mean, so he always wanted me to do law and, you know, help women out. And it was just... But after I cried for two hours, he told me, you know, I've broken the children's trust fund, entire life savings. This is the money. Take it and go. Run. And then I cried for another two hours in <laughs> absolute relief and some amount of shame, I have to say, an embarrassment because I realized that, you know, maybe I misjudged him because he was always so negative about what I wanted to do and never ate my food with joy that he gave every, all the money he had to me and with nothing, like, you know, not like, you know, don't lose it, don't, he didn't say any of those things. That would have kind of ruined it a bit. <laughs> he just told me, take the money and run and for God's sake, stop crying. I can't tolerate seeing you crying like this and, you know, this guy, you know, how could you allow a guy to make you cry? You know, what is this? You're supposed to be the big warrior. So he mocked my, my warrior uh, because I come from a, a warrior clan. He said, you know, a disgrace to your warrior clan, you know. <laughs> Warriors don't sit and cry. Just take the money. Go. And I never even asked him anything after that. Took all his money. I opened the <laughs> restaurant. I was just so exciting. But this thing came back to haunt me when Netflix uh, were doing the filming. Of course, they would want to speak to my husband uh, because, you know, that's what they would do because this is the whole story. But how I got the money, what I did, uh, he refused to be interviewed. So, yes, so those who will see my Netflix show... You will not even see a shadow of my husband. <laughs> but what he doesn't know, and I, I haven't said this to anyone, as a, that I gave Netflix our wedding pictures. And Mushtaq's going to kill me when he says that. <laughs> and so he's suddenly, I don't know how they're going to use it, but I gave them all our wedding pictures, the pictures in Cambridge of him and me. So I said, at least have his face there. Or Mushtaq's going to kill me for that. But it's there. So I, I, gave, I gave our wedding pictures where he looks very embarrassed and staring at this person he barely knows, all dressed in the traditional bridal hues of reds and pinks, and he's this very embarrassed-looking bridegroom, and I, I, I did that. I, sometimes I regret that. Maybe I shouldn't have given those pictures, but they've used them. Yeah, so he's going to see himself. No, and, you know, he might enjoy it then, and like giving you the money, he's probably going to turn around and say this was an excellent thing. So, you know, you, at the moment, you seem to be making the right choices. So yes. you're doing all... Hey, everyone. I've been on the go recently. Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago. If you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home, you have an Airbnb. 
Posting your home or a spare room is a very practical side hustle. If you live in a big game town, you can Airbnb your place for fans to stay in. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash boast. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Right. Tell me more about the restaurant. So you open... I opened, uh, I opened in June of last year, and we have done really well. Yeah. We are... My rent and rates is eye-watering because of where I am. But I'm very lucky, fortunate. Uh, you know, I've, I don't worry about paying the rents. So we are okay. We're doing fine. And, you know, and also, I've been able to price it at a price where I, I feel comfortable because, uh, you know, West End rates are high, but it is somewhere where some, anyone, even a lot of students come in to eat. And that, that was really important for me, that I did not want to have a restaurant where I excluded people because of my VAT rates and rent. Uh, these people who came to my supper clubs, who came to the pub, I want them to be able to still come to, and they do, because they can afford to come. We are not overpriced. We are very fairly priced. And uh, it's... it's I, I'm at peace. I, you know, we we are doing really well. We have a great team, and, and your team are all women as well. Yeah, the, the kitchen. kitchen. The kitchen team is all women, and outside are also almost all women now. Yeah, uh, we kind of have lost the men one by one outside. <laughs> uh, they, uh, yeah, because they complain more than the women. So and anyone who complains goes. I I can't tolerate people who whinge. So that's <laughs> the thing that you know we have very tough women who work for us, and they have. And they're very passionate, and most of them turn out to be second daughters because I'm a second daughter, my entire kitchen is second daughters. And it's become a very emotional, close-knit thing, and they're not all Asians. Can you know? explain the second daughter thing for people? Because I've read about it, but they maybe haven't, and why that's an important thing. Yeah, I, I've, I come from a family where, uh, you know, only a male can be an heir. But that's not the reason why being a second daughter is complicated. Being a second daughter is complicated in South Asia completely because of this archaic dowry system. Parents lament the birth of a second girl, not because they don't love the girl, but because it's a huge financial burden for many families. It destroys them getting... because, And the honor of that girl becomes a liability because they can't find a suitable boy for this girl uh, because they have to pay a lot of money. Uh, so... Uh, it's very rare for any celebration for a second girl. And I was always, I fought a lot. I used to fight a lot with people. I used to climb trees and steal other people's mangoes and get caught. And every time that happened, the, the neighbors would catch me, take me to 
my house and tell me that, you know, no wonder no one wanted you and no wonder, no wonder everyone cried when you were born and your grandmother never came to see you and nobody came to see you because you were like, everyone like, oh no, another girl. I was like, you know, this is so bad. I should tell my mother, this is what he said. My mother said, he's lying. I said, fine, he's lying. But of course, one part of me thought that how are so many different people saying the same thing? That my mother wept at my birth. That my grandmother, who'd had five daughters herself, and her out of her five daughters, three had earlier, just months away from my uh, my birth, had all also had daughters. I think, you know, it it kind of leaves... I don't know, nobody has... I can't remember being told that, you know, oh, nobody loves you. But it just felt strange. And we all have a problem being second daughters because you, you feel that, you know, you're not wanted. And so one of the things that I do, the money from the restaurant is going to go to that. We're in the process of setting up a charity where we, we pay for the celebration, a party for the birth of a second girl. So no one can tell her that everyone cried when you were born because they... We pay for the party, so there was a party. And we also then, of course, we pay for the education. That's amazing. I want to, talking of women and all of that, I would like you to read a bit of the book. Okay. If you can. Yes, I can. I'm going to have to move this round. Sure. Oops. Okay, so uh, for those who have seen the cover, I, this little passage will explain uh, what, why this cover is so... Uh, just so right for what I was trying to say. During an interview, I was asked to name a female icon who I looked upon. In that moment, the first person who came to my mind was not a woman working in food, but the first and only female ruler of Delhi. Razia Sultan ruled Delhi from uh, November 1236 to October 1240, so not a very long reign. Uh, Razia was the daughter of Iltamish, who began his life as a Turkish slave, but he then went on to become Sultan of Delhi. Despite having male heirs, Iltamish recognized the merit of his daughter and named her as his heir. On becoming Sultan, Razia faced constant hostility from Turkish nobility in the Delhi court for being a woman. So she, there are lots of accusations of love affairs. Uh, although acknowledged by you know, contemporaries and even by the Turkish uh, nobles that she was a just ruler and able administrator, Razia was eventually removed from the throne by an all-male nobility and her brother, a very, very incompetent brother was made ruler. The term sultan is more commonly applied to male rulers, but the word derives from the Arabic word sulta, meaning authority or power. I wonder if her story might have been different if during her reign as sultan, Razia had gathered around her a group of like-minded supportive women, installed an all-female cabinet, and made the commander of her army a female warrior. Our restaurant, Dajni Express in Kingly Court, is run by an all-female kitchen. And coincidentally, the entire team who worked on this cookbook were also all-female. That's the pavilion team. When I was shown a rough draft of the cover of this book, uh, I was totally stunned. I mean, I cried. It reminded me so much of the portraits I'd seen of Razia Sultan. Uh, my next thought was that although it was my face, the portrait repre represents all the generations of nameless, faceless, silent South Asian women who cooked and fed their families. They were never, ever acknowledged. They were never immortalized in portraits. Their contribution was taken for granted, and to the women of my kitchen and the women of kitchens everywhere, we are the sultans of kitchens. Lovely. So, a restaurant and then a book follows. Yes. And 
this was quite daunting to you as well. No, you'd never like written a recipe in this kind of way. No. How did you start the project of working on it? I I struggled a bit because I've I've everything is taught by oral. Uh, you know, people just tell you the picture of the picture of that. So my first recipe, I got my sons to to film me, and everything I picked up by hand, my son weighed. Because if you tell me, you know, this is one teaspoon, I will never know. I need to touch it to lift it. That's that's the only way I can cook. And the recipes are all true. You know, they're actually the family recipes. They work. I mean, I think maximum books have been bought by my own family because they're all the girls in my in my family who are abroad who don't know how to cook i mean they come and they buy six or seven books from the restaurant and was like you know this is your cousin why is she buying books like this i said oh don't know because nobody has written recipes so the first time that these recipes have been written down and it's uh it was you know once my son started recording and helping me. So yes, my son has a in fact I, I he pointed out that you didn't acknowledge me well enough in the book. I just <laughs> I just mentioned it, but yes, he he measured everything. So it was still by touch and by instinct and by thing, but it once I started writing, I I could just write all of them and the pavilion team, I must say, are angels because the night before the photo shoot, three of my most complicated recipes, I realized oh, I've written it. So they had to get all the stuff at four o'clock in the morning to do this. So the leg of lamb and the the fish and the the roast chicken. Suddenly I worked up because the lamb, the you know the leg of lamb. Usually I've seen it being made like twenty for twenty legs because it's for a big big wedding. So there are you know the rest of the meat is used for biryani and so I had no idea how to reduce it down to one, but it works because and the most beautiful thing about this recipe it has uh, a, a essence a screw pine essence in the meat that goes in. It's a beautiful, fragrant uh, meat. And suddenly I thought, you know, I want people to make this because this is the, you know, this aroma that comes from this meat is just, I remember my wedding, this was made and the smells were coming through from the window. She smelled the, you know, and this was, of course, you know, we had 5,000 people so it was a lot of meat, but that is that is the that is that recipe which I. That I've, is a lot of laughing. <laughs> well, yeah, it was a lot. This is why I, str- I struggled with one, but I've managed to do it. I managed to reduce it down even to a feast for two, which was fun and you know a lot of experimenting and you know torturing the kids, but it all worked out. And and, and the book is divided into things you would have just for two or smaller yeah. groups, and then larger kind of festivities. I think that's great, and yeah. it's you know a very easy way to use it. What's your favorite kind of recipe in the book? I love the chicken chop. Yeah. Uh, the because that that That's is what we made as well. The chicken no. chop and the korma are the two favorite ones. The, we made the korma. The korma. Yeah, the chicken chop. So those and are the kor- first two. Like once you look at the book, these are like the first two that jump out at you, and you're like, okay, this is dinner tonight. Yeah, for sure. The chicken dinner tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, one on one. That's yeah, true. the chicken chop and the korma. I I really like. I I've done them in the demos as well, because uh, it is it. I really love the subtlety. People's impression, sorry, uh, people's impression of Indian food is very loud and brash. Indian people are like this. Our food is not like this. <laughs> Our food is very, very refined. It's very delicate. It's very nuanced. And, you know, it is so subtle, some of our flavoring. So this you can see in these two dishes, the subtlety of flavoring. And this is a very Mughal style of cooking. It's an Islamic tradition of cooking in India. And that that is what I, you know, being Muslim, I celebrate my identity in these kinds of dishes because uh, this is also, you know, very is dying out because all the little shops that used to make these kind of things are closing down. 
And uh, so I, I know there's only a few families now where the decisions are made. And I'm so happy that I managed to get the recipes out in the book. The people, and I've written this, you know, explaining what Mughlai food is in the book. But I said, once you eat these dishes, you will never again get confused by, is this Mughal or is this not Mughlai? You'll know. Because once you've made it, you'll know what you've done and the layering. And the moment you taste something with that kind of spicing, you'll recognize and identify the region where it comes from in India. Then, all of this, which is a lot, like an amazing book, an amazing restaurant, everything's going well. They come and they shoot you for Netflix, yes. for Chef's Table. I mean, this is completely mind-blowing. You're the first British chef to be there in general from everything that exists in England. You, I mean, that's amazing in its own. But this process of having a TV crew follow your every move, and they come for 20 days, yes. yeah? Yes, yeah, they film me for 20 days. Yeah. To, which, Tell us a bit about how does that work with everything? Uh, after the second day, I didn't really care. I, you know, that they were there, they were filming. I just was uh, very relaxed because it, I realized that this is like a nightmare. They're, you know, they're, they're filming everything that I'm doing. So I just thought, fine, I'm just going to be as normal as possible and try and survive this through. They were incredible. And I think that they got a, a very interesting crew. So they got the, you know, the Emmy-nominated camera crews and people who'd been working on every chef's table. In. But they also had brought in three women, including a female director. She's of Indian origin, grew up in Australia. And I think that that did help because I think she was able to see through uh, the kind of what people see when they see me. They see the you know, color of my skin. They listen to my accent. But she went beyond all of those things and she went into this whole thing that, you know, what makes you take... You know, what is it that keeps you awake at night? You know, why, what, what are the things that you really care about? It was really fantastic. I, it was a great experience. I thought I would hate it. I absolutely thought I was going to be miserable. And I wept when it finished and they were so emotional. And uh, I don't know whether we're running out of time, but I, I, I just want to say, uh, you have time? Am I, I, I sat when they left and I asked my father that, you know, it feels unreal you know, why did this happen to me? You know, why did they pick me of, you know, of everyone that they could have picked? And then my father told me about a poem which I remember my great-grandfather reciting when he became the first Indian leader uh, under the British Raj uh, over his whole area. So it was a very big thing. And it's a, it's a, it's a poem in Farsi, in Persian. I, I'm, you know, I can't say the Persian uh, as... But basically translated, it's a conversation between a plant and a farmer where the plant asks the farmer that, you know, I'm not the most uh, beautiful and I'm not the strongest tree, nor am I one that gives the most grain to you. I want to ask you, farmer, why you planted me? And I feel the same way. I don't know why they picked me, but, you know, there was so much, there's so many other people they could have taken who were, you know, more famous or Michelin stars and who'd achieved more. But for whatever reason, they picked me. Because they're smart people. <laughs> and they also know that this will so much pay off in the future. I think this is one amazing thing about producing something is they're not thinking just about you now. They're thinking about where you're going to be and that's going to be so far. So for them, they, you know, they caught you before it's too late and they can't I suppose like, so. get but a it was, hand of you. I, it was overwhelming afterwards. During the whole process, it was just like, you know, you get changed and you're wired up and this then it's raining and then we get our car stuck, we get arrested in stations. <laughs> all of this happened to us in India, all very exciting. 
uh, yeah, all of us got arrested in the train station. So you see all these beautiful train stations, no, no, no hassle that we had, because you, know, you can't film in train stations in India without permission. Of course, we tried to, and then we had trouble. <laughs> but it was all fun. It all worked out in the end. It's amazing. So you're opening another place now. Yes, I'm opening a, a tea room. My, I always wanted to have a tea shop. I don't know why. When I was small, uh, I, because that's where I would go and have tea with the servants' children where I play cricket. I always thought the tea shop was one place where everyone was equal. A tea was cheap. Everyone could have the same tea from the same container. I don't. It just always made sense to me that you didn't have to be rich or poor. It didn't matter that you know I was technically a princess, and you know the person drinking tea next to me was some you know rickshaw puller. I love the fact that it was this great leveling area that everyone was same. I always want to have a tea shop, and the landlord offered me a tea shop for three months. I'm very excited. The builders have moved out today, so we are going to open on the 28th, and we're going to do. So not coffee. Everyone's coming saying, you don't do coffee? No, because I don't drink coffee. I don't even know how to make coffee. So we're doing chai and we're doing Indian sandwiches, which I have named after women, including Razia Sultan. So I've named one after Razia uh, and one after my mother and my sister. And what about so, yours? Do you have a sandwich? And as no, a sandwich? No, no. That would be so hard. That's the one I was going to buy. That's no, no, the that's, one you need to would, have. That would give away... Everything about me. I think, uh, yeah, but it's, it's, it's fun. I'm excited because we have, I'm doing cakes with another second daughter, uh, an Indian uh, baker, and I'm trying to get involved. And also the tea I'm, I'm, I'm serving is from my ancestral tea garden, which my great-grandfather planted in 1884. It's been in my family for all these generations. And it's the first time that tea from that part, my mother's family, has come to England and to my tea garden. You know, it's a kind of big thing for me. It's a moment of great pride that, you know, I've been able to bring tea from my own ancestral uh, family yeah. garden. That's absolutely amazing. Uh, I'm going to open for some questions, guys. Does anyone have anything? Mm. Yes? So you come across as quite naughty and that you do a lot of things kind of in spite or as a contrary, do you think that's a motivator for you? I'm not sure. I think I haven't... Uh, I try not to analyze myself too much because I think then, then, then that takes away the joy of being impulsive. I've, I've was, I am different. I'm very different from everyone in my family. And I've, I've never allowed to be others to chain me down and tell me what to do. But at some level also, I'm very, very uh, traditional. Uh, I don't come across as it, but I'm someone with a lot of faith. And, you know, I'm, I'm you know, I, I, in fact, in the film as well, I go to a Sufi Darga and pray. So, you know, I'm, I'm very traditional on those fronts. You know, I don't drink, I don't smoke. Uh, I I'm, I'm, don't do any of those things that, you know, one would think that, you know, if you want to break. So, yes, I've broken rules of certain things, but you're right on that. But I, I, I don't think I'm a kind of, all, all along, all complete rebel, because I've, I've always conformed to what the family has wanted as far as, you know, the, the way that I treat adults and children and whatever. So that way, I'm quite still quite traditional. It's a kind of, you know, almost schizophrenic existence when you are an immigrant, uh, when you when you walk through and you walk inside your own home, your behavior has to change, and mine doesn't change completely, but. So I'm not a kind of all, I'm not troubled everywhere. But yes, uh, in some things, yes, I have broken every rule. 
I have no regret. My family, what they think of me now is that they are actually very, very proud of me. Yes, and my very, you know, very old aunt of mine, she uh, thought very well this time when I went. Uh, she said something that I have never been, I've never heard being said to another woman. She told me I brought honor to my clan. And that, you know, coming from a clan of warriors where boys were always superior to girls, I was told something that I've never, I don't think women have ever been told. And the f fact that all the men in my family were so emotional when she said it, uh, it's not just a passing comment. It's something quite big. And they did seem, and everybody turned up uh, very well dressed except my son who insisted on wearing a bright pink Hawaiian shirt with watermelons on it uh, <laughs> for the filming of Chef's Table. And, you know, in my family courtyard, Keeping the tradition of fighting, fighting conformity. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so my younger one dressed up like that. There was no time to change, to make him change, and he knew it. He came so last minute. Uh, yeah, he was just like horror. I was just horrified. But everybody turned up. My great uncle. They all sat. They 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 did all the kind of you know refilming this film, that film, that. They sat through this whole thing with great pride, and uh, yes, it is. It's the only way that a family could honor you. They did it. They all turned up, they wanted to be filmed, and they said it, that you brought honor to the family. I'm, I'm, it's, a, it's maybe a little bit of a technical question, but in your kitchen in Darjeeling Express, do you have hierarchy? How, how do you pass on the recipes? You know, would you say, oh yeah, when you cook it, you know, less cardamom next time, or you need to fix this, or just everyone does their, everyone knows the job? There is, a, the way that our kitchen works is there's no hierarchy. And there's no hierarchy literally in the complete sense that everyone is paid the same hourly rate, kitchen porter and me. And uh, the main cooking is done by just two of us, me and someone else. And she has learned these recipes from my own, my family. She grew up in my family kitchen in India. So I've known her like I knew her from the time she was born. And everybody cooks. There's no, there are no instructions. Uh, I think that's because we're all home cooks. So because they've been cooking from, I don't even know at which point anyone learned anything, but they know everything now. But it's, uh, you know, I have no, I can't even answer that question. But everyone cooks uh, naturally, exactly like me. And I don't know, they just learned it. And very little communication happens. This is why Michelin got this big kicking when they talked about this calm kitchen of women, the Michelin Guide. Yeah, yeah. They put this tweet out where everybody was like saying how this is so sexist. I, I felt pity for them because I think that they just, you know, there is complete silence in my kitchen. No one talks. Everyone is watching each other. Except when you're there. No, no, I, I, no, I'm... <laughs> that's a, that's I, a bit of a, you yeah, know, yeah. I, I didn't... Uh, no, no, so every, everyone is very, when we're actually cooking, even I'm silent. I'm, I'm silent and I'm also barefoot, which is against health and safety, but I'm barefoot. I can't, I can't wear shoes and cook. I, I need to feel the ground. Now I do wear shoes because I'm scared of getting inspected. So I you, should, you shouldn't be scared of the inspection. You should be scared of burning your feet or sticking a knife in them. No, but the thing There's is, there's a reason for some of the safety rules, not but, all of them. But, but the thing is that in India, we don't wear shoes. No, in at our home kitchen. I get it. I cook barefoot. Yeah, at home yeah. All so the it time, was quite but. painful for me to learn how to wear shoes, but now I do. There's a question in the back. The UK. 
if, <laughs> if you were to move back to to India, what would what would you miss about the UK? I would miss the freedom, uh, the liberty to do and be who I am, because I think that uh, it is still very hard for someone coming from the family I do to go back and be this free spirit. Uh, I think I would have to be reined in by my family because that's what they. It would it would create problems for other people in my family, because the thing is that you know if if people gossip about you, or are unhappy about you, it impacts on other cousins. And I come from a very close knit family. Uh, our society is quite difficult when it comes to gossiping about women, and um, it's tough. It's tough, and you know we haven't progressed that much when it comes to liberty, freedom, you know, uh, people, if I came back at one o'clock in the morning from work, I think I would be questioned, you know, it's not safe. And maybe it is not safe. Uh, so personal safety, personal space, all of these things become complicated. Uh, I think now I've left that point in my journey where I would, where I yearn to go home. I think I would find it very difficult to go back and put myself back in a box where my family and society would expect me to be boxed with, you know, I don't like anyone drawing lines around me and telling me, you are this. I'll be whatever I want to be, whenever I want to be. And I think in India it would be difficult, especially in India today. <laughs> Guys, let's give a big hand to Asma. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for listening to our latest episode of The Honey Talk. If you'd like to join one of the next talks, please follow us on social media at Honey and Co. or go on our website, honeyandco.co.uk. We would really appreciate if you took some time and rated us at iTunes. Only five stars, please. With a huge thanks to Hester Kant for producing. And the music is by the lovely Alice Russell. Thanks for listening. Bye, Felicia's. Every time.